If you have your Bible today, let's turn to Romans chapter 3 as we keep going through the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible, then it's going to be on page 941 in that black pew Bible that should be on the end of the pew that you're sitting in right now. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself, then please take that Bible. It's our gift to you and considered a Christmas present, I guess, right now, but um, we'll give those away all the time. Uh, we are continuing through Romans. Uh, we uh, Obviously, we have our, our decorations up and singing Christmas hymns and all kinds of, of things having to do with that. Occasionally, uh, the timing works out such that in the month of December, uh, I'll do something like a Christmas series of sermons. And uh, this month, we're continuing right through Romans. Uh, there's two reasons for that. One is because in the coming months, we are right around the corner from uh, presenting to you as a congregation a completely overhauled version of the church constitution, uh, which means that I'm going to need to do some preaching on why we're doing that and the contents of it and what it is that God says uh, is appropriate for a church to, to do as a church, how we ought to be organized, what is our purpose, why it is that we're talking about instituting a plurality of elders and calling out who it is that would be um, uh, gifted and uh, qualified by God uh, to, to serve as those elders. That's going to be a whole preaching series in itself. So uh, we will have to take a break from Romans to do that right around the corner. So that's one reason. But then the other reason is because this is still a Christmas sermon either way. Because why is it that Jesus came into the world? Well, what did the angel announce to Mary when, uh, when she said, here's what you'll call his name? She said, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's the whole reason Jesus came. It was announced from the beginning by the angel. Uh, this is why Jesus came, is to save his people from their sins. And so we're not, going to talk, uh, we're not going to stop talking about Jesus saving his people from their sins right now. And it is a great place to go to here in the next passage in Romans uh, to look at that. We're going to be in the second half of verse 24 into the first half of verse 25 of Romans 3 today. And uh, just for a little bit of context of where we're coming from, I'm going to start reading at verse 20 uh, up to where we are today in verse 25. It says this, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that's halfway through verse 25, but that's as far as we will get today, so I'll stop reading right there for now. Last week, we, we looked at what it had just said about God giving justification by his grace as a gift. Justification is God counting us as righteous in his sight. Even though we have sinned, even though the wages of sin is death, that God justifies sinners. He would count us as righteous. He would put us into the righteous column in his book and that he would do that not for some sort of a payment or a merit that we would present to him, but it says here, by his grace as a gift. So what we talked about and saw in that passage last time was the manner in which God justifies sinners. 
which is freely by his grace. And in the next phrase, what we're going to talk about today, he talks not so much about the manner of how he does it, but the means by which he justifies sinners. He does it freely by his grace, but it's not free. It's not cheap. It is free to us, but to God, it's an infinite cost. It's the cost of his own son, the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have in front of us today, is that we have redemption in Jesus Christ. If you're looking on the back of your bulletin, there's, there's four points. And the first one is redemption in Christ Jesus. And really, all of them are about redemption in Christ Jesus. And the, the, the last of the three points really kind of expand on what that redemption is. But this is what we're talking about today. The way that God justifies sinners is by redeeming us through Jesus Christ, whom God the Father put forth as a propitiation by his blood that we are to receive by faith. When it says here in verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, what is redemption? We need to know what this is. The, the world throws around the word redemption in all kinds of ways. The world would present it to us as, as something like getting better or doing better or having a great inspiring story. But the word redemption in the Bible is about the purchase of release from bondage. The purchase of release from bondage. Often that word is, is used uh, in the, the language of the time. Uh, about paying to release a slave, that somebody might have been in a position of servitude and, and there could be a certain amount paid in order to make up for what was still lacking in that servitude that hadn't been paid off to the point where they could be freed yet. Or even worse, they could have been in permanent bondage and been brought out of it and released from that unjust situation altogether. Well, in the Old Testament, this word redemption is often spoken of in terms of the release of the slaves of the Israelites from Egypt. It often refers to the exodus in Old Test the Old Testament, which is deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt and the suffering that they experienced under Egypt's power. In the New Testament, we see what that release from slavery was all about. That Colossians tells us that these things that happened in the Old Testament were shadows of what was to come, but the substance is Christ. That release from bondage to slavery in Egypt was a very big and important thing, but it was a shadow, and what was casting that shadow was the big release from a bigger bondage that would be brought by the Savior, the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament... Often it was this deliverance of people from slavery to Egypt and the suffering under Egypt's power, but in the New Testament it refers to the cross. Not the exodus, but the cross, which is God's deliverance of his people, not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin. Not from the suffering that's experienced under that oppression from man, but the suffering that's experienced under the oppression of sin and the suffering that's come into the world because of that. Jesus came to redeem a people for himself, to save his people from their sins, and that is a redemption from sin and misery. 
the sin and misery, the sin that's come into the world and the misery that flows out of it. Hebrews 9.15 talks about this redemption from sin. It says, therefore he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' death redeems us from the transgressions against the, the law of God. And that it's a redemption from the misery that flows out of sin, too. Romans 8.23 says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. It says the redemption of our bodies. Even our bodies falling apart is because of the effects of of sin that has come into the world. There was no such thing as death before there was sin. There was no such thing as the curse upon the world that attacks us in disease and in natural disasters and just in the rot and decay that happens in us and around us. All of that is a result of sin and the curse of sin, but Jesus has come to bring redemption from the full bondage of sin and all of its effects. Now, if you're saying to yourself, but I trust in Jesus, and I still sin, and my body's still falling apart, well, Jesus still bought the full freedom, and he will bring it about. Sin and misery came into the world in the Garden of Eden. Mankind was made in holiness and happiness, but in disobeying God, they fell from holiness to sin. They fell from happiness to misery. But even in the curses that were pronounced in Genesis 3, of that misery and that punishment for sin, there was announced right there in verse 15 of Genesis 3 that there would be a Redeemer who would come and do something about it. The seed of the woman who would have his heel crushed by Satan but would use his heel to crush Satan's head it would overcome sin and Satan and misery for all time. And he did it at the cross. He accomplished it at the cross, and he's going to consummate it when he comes again. But it's done in the redemption of Jesus. You need to know that this redemption is in Christ, and it's a redemption that's so much better than what the world says is redemption. I, I mentioned just a second ago, I think I even said it last week, that sometimes you'll, you'll hear people talking about redemption in terms of, uh, of an inspiring story. You know, maybe somebody fell to the, the lowest of lows and they were in the, the, the throes of addiction and, and all kinds of things and, and, and they came out of it and sometimes that's spoken of as a redemption story. Well, guys, there is something much better in the redemption of Christ than just rising above the circumstances of life. Something much better in the redemption of Christ than just lifting yourself out of a hole that you dug for yourself. It, it is redemption, not just out of a bad situation turning better. This is redemption out of something that we could not possibly do anything about. We were in bondage to sin. And in bondage to sin, you might improve your circumstances. You might do a little better than you did. But that's not redemption. The redemption that Jesus brings is where we could not do anything about our circumstances, our sin, our misery, our sentence of death, but Jesus came and bought us 
by his blood. He redeemed us. Some of you guys are familiar with the name Garrett Detweiler. He was a pastor here in the 1940s. And he, he served in World War II. He took a, about a year-long leave of absence from being the pastor of this church so that he could volunteer uh, and, and go into the army and serve as a chaplain. And he went on the front lines with the U.S. Army in 1945 at the end of the war as they were rolling through Germany. And he was right there witnessing and ministering as, uh, as concentration camps were being freed. He went right in. There had been rumors of what was going on, but he went and saw it with his eyes. You think of what was going on in those concentration camps, just unspeakable things, unspeakable things. But that's what I thought of when I was thinking about the redemption of Jesus. This is not something you can just decide, I'm going to improve my circumstances and have redemption in the way that the world talks about it. If you, were in those, if you were in one of those concentration camps, it's possible that somebody in there could have been very, very innovative and, and found some sort of a way to improve their circumstances a little bit within the concentration camp, maybe to get themselves a good pair of shoes and a square meal every now and then, which would have been a lot, maybe to overcome certain adversities within the camp. But they weren't going to be able to free themselves. That had to come from the outside. When we look at these inspiring stories, or maybe you even have an inspiring story that you did apart from Christ, there are those who have come out of addiction and, and, and improved their circumstances in various ways. And, and just like we would never sell somebody in a concentration camp, no, don't try to get better shoes. We're not going to tell you, no, don't try to come out of addiction. But you need to know that there is a greater bondage that we are in that we need to be redeemed from. The bondage is sin. And the wages of sin is death. And the one and only Redeemer is Jesus Christ. Not you or me. It's not through some sort of a political thing that redemption can come. It's not through some sort of a personal thing. It's not through a charity thing. It's as, as good as many of those things can be in their, their intentions and even in their effects. The only redemption in a real and eternal sense is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, some who would hear that would say, well, I don't think that I'm really in bondage. I don't think that I really am in this sort of a slavery to sin that you're talking about. That sounds really weird. In fact, I feel pretty free when I sin. Or I feel pretty free to choose not to. I'm, I'm no slave. Some would even say, well, I feel pretty free, and I'm not in bondage, and I'm a pretty good person, and I'm pretty religious. And in fact, Jesus talked to a group of people who were in that position in John chapter 8. They said to Jesus, when Jesus said that the truth will set you free, they said, we don't need to be set free. We're children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage. And here's Jesus' answer to them in John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Regardless of whether you think to yourself, no, I've never been in bondage to sin, that sounds goofy. Or whether you absolutely know exactly what that means and you know the slavery 
that had entrapped you. Either way, the fact is true. We were born into sin. We were born into misery. We were born enslaved. And there is one and only one redeemer. He's Jesus. You see what it says? He doesn't just say that God gives redemption. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is not a general sort of redemption. It's not just like, well, maybe, maybe he's just saying that if you do your best and you have good intentions and you pursue some sort of a religious pursuit here or there, that, that there's redemption that's available in all kinds of ways. No, he says it is in one place and it's in a person. And his name is Jesus. This redemption that we have so that we can receive God's grace as a gift, so that we can be justified It's in the person of Jesus. He came to bring grace and truth. Guys, you cannot be justified in his sight through the law. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. I just read that in verse 20. But where does grace and truth come from? It comes through Jesus Christ. You know what you need to do with this is you need to look to Jesus, and you need to go to Jesus for your redemption. One of the analogies that Jesus used about himself when he was speaking about his ministry is he said that I am the gate of the sheep. He's inviting stray sheep right there. Come through the gate. Come through the gate. Come to Jesus. There is freedom and life offered to you. Come through the gate into the freedom of Christ. If your faith is not in Jesus, do that right now. You don't even have to wait till the end of the sermon. Go to Jesus by faith in him right now. And he will take the redemption that he purchased it at the cross and apply it to your heart by the Holy Spirit. Go to Jesus through the gate. And for those of you who are in Jesus, as, as Paul said in Colossians, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you've been redeemed by Christ and had that redemption applied to you by the Holy Spirit to believe in him and be saved, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. That can happen in two ways. One is license and one is legalism. You can go to the the yoke of slavery by saying, well, now I have a license to sin because Jesus forgives me. You know what that is? That's mistaking sin for freedom when sin is bondage. Or you could go to the yoke of slavery again by legalism, which is mistaking ritual for redemption. We don't have redemption in ritual, whether it's a ritual that Jesus set up himself, like the Lord's Supper, or whether it's a ritual that you set up for yourself. (laughs) Like, I will take these steps in order to become right with God after my sin. You cannot go about your redemption by your ritual. It is secured in Jesus Christ. Don't walk in license. Don't walk in legalism. Don't walk in bondage. Go to the gate who is Jesus, who invites you, sheep, to go through and be free from sin and misery. You may still experience their presence, but if you go to Jesus, you will be free from their power, and one day he will come again, and you will be face-to-face with him, and you'll be free in every sense from sin and misery forever 
and ever. It's a redemption in Christ Jesus. It's not anywhere but Christ, but it's full in Christ. That's why we call Christ the Redeemer with a big R, the only Redeemer of God's elect. And then it says about this Redeemer and this redemption that we have in Christ Jesus in verse 25, as I said, the the following points on the back of your bulletin, they're not really separate from redemption, they're just explaining what it is, and that's what he has here. He says this redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and he explains the redemption, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is how our redemption, our freedom, our forgiveness comes about. This is the means by which Jesus bought us. It says God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Let's think about those words, whom God put forward. Whom God put forward. Christ is the price of our redemption. And God the Father put forward God the Son to be our sacrifice for our sins. Now that, that's, in a way, it's hard to wrap our minds around because we know that God is three in one. There is only one God. That's all over the Bible. That's very clear. God is one. And within God being one, God is also three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet one God And within this triune God, God the Father, according to this verse, put forward God the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Wow. Think about it this way. I would never, I'm not God, I would never put forward my son for death. I just wouldn't. But before I had any children, I, I heard people talk about this. I heard people talk about the feeling of their, for their own children. And I, I, you know, you can, you can understand what they mean before you have kids. And, and also, when I had my first son, Ben, there he is, I, I just immediately had this thought. I cannot grasp what it means for God the Father to give his only begotten son for us. It's just, if someone were to ask me whether I would choose myself or my son to die, there wouldn't be a time of sitting there, you know, trying to work out which option is better. It would be immediate. I would say, strap me to the pole, put me over the firewood right now, burn it as slow as you need to. I am not sending my son into any harm whatsoever. Just wouldn't do it. But you know what that does? It just makes it so much more incomprehensible and amazing to see that God the Father put forth God the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, of course, in merely human terms, there's all kinds of things wrapped up in there, all kinds of things with the fact that my son and I are not the same being. We, are, we do not have the same will, and yet within God, there is one unified will. God the Son, Jesus Christ, he went forward willingly. This was part of his own will, as well as the will of the Father, as well as the will of the Spirit, because there is only one will in God, and it is unified. He is one God, and yet, again, just with the mystery of the Trinity, how unimaginably difficult is it to comprehend that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
It's amazing. It's amazing. I want to talk about three things that it means when it says God put him forward. The first one is that it means that God took the initiative in our salvation. God put him forward. This was not us having to start something new to be redeemed. This is God taking the initiative. This reminds me of two verses in in 1 John 4. It says, we love because he first loved us. Do you hear that? Why do we love? Why would anyone love God? Well, we wouldn't, except that God took the initiative to first love us. God put him forward. He says in that same chapter, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God took the initiative. God was not waiting around to see who will it be who seeks after me. In fact, that would be nobody, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Nobody seeks after God, but God put him forward anyway. He's going to go on in chapter 5 and talk about how amazing this is. This is love that, that God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, not saints, while we were sinners, that Christ died for us. God took the initiative. You do not have to start something to be redeemed. You do not have to figure something out. You do not have to figure out a path of redemption. God is the one who put Christ forward as the propitiation to be received by faith. Second thing that we see in God putting him forward is that God did this publicly. It's not just that God took the initiative, but that God brought Christ out to be seen. He put him forward on display It is no secret who Jesus is or what Jesus has done. This is one of the biggest differences between Christianity and every other religion of the world. Every other religion of the world depends on things that are non-falsifiable. The idea that there was some sort of a private revelation that came to someone privately over here that nobody else was privy to. Or, or, or the idea that just some sort of a philosophy came out of this great teacher or, or, or these, these things that just can't be tested or falsified in history. But do you know what God did with Jesus? God the Father put forth God the Son publicly in time and space and history so that if what, he, what was claimed about him were not true, that would have been very easy to quickly falsify and throw the whole thing out so that the movement would have just died. But in fact, God put him forward. Christ lived publicly his perfect righteous life in public. Christ taught publicly the perfect word of God. Christ did his miracles publicly, which people could not deny that he had done. They complained about the people that he did them for and the places and the times that he did the miracles But they couldn't deny that he had done them. His works testified to him. Jesus died publicly as he was put forth in a great spectacle with this crowd crying, crucify him. And Jesus rose publicly with over 500 eyewitnesses to him after he had risen from the dead. Guys, Christ has been put forward 
and you don't need any more evidence. You just don't. You don't need more evidence than the fact that Christ has been put forward. You can trust upon him and not have to say, but I need this and this and this and this and this apologetic resource. Those resources are good. There's some very good ones out there, but God has already put Christ forward to be believed in. The third thing that it means that he's been put forward is that God is the one who orchestrated this. God is the one who orchestrated what it says as he put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. God is the one who orchestrated the cross. God was not just looking and seeing, well, what, what, are man, what is man going to do? How are things going to go in human society? What's Israel going to do? What are the Romans going to do? And then how can I respond to that? Uh, and, and okay, I guess I better send my son, but oh no, they're turning against him. What am I going to do? Oh no, they want to crucify him. What am I going to do? Maybe I can work this out for good. God orchestrated this. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Here's the way that it's put very directly in Acts 4.26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You hear that? It says right there, yeah, there was Herod, there was Pontius Pilate, there was a crowd shouting for blood, and it was all what God had predestined to take place as God had put him forward to be the propitiation for our sins. You don't need to plan a way of redemption. God has already made the plan and carried out the plan, and here it is, to be received by faith. What did he put him forward as? He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now look down at your Bible, the one that you brought or the one that you're holding right now at verse 25. It says, God put him forward as a propitiation. Some Bibles don't have that word in there. And I thought about, do I want to say this as a joke or not? But I don't want to say this as a joke. If your Bible does not have the word propitiation in that verse, you need to get a new Bible. That's what the word is. That's what the word means. Some Bibles, I understand what they were doing because that's a weird word. That's not a word that we use in everyday English just to say, uh, you know, hey, you got any propitiation today? I get that. There are some Bibles that are trying to use terms that sort of get at the idea in a simpler way. There's other Bibles that have really changed the word because they just simply do not believe, the translators did not believe in the doctrine that is put here, that Christ would be a propitiation. And, it, and if it's not there, I, I highly recommend, go get yourself a Bible that says propitiation in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, okay? What is a propitiation, though? I just said some Bibles want to change it because it's a hard word to understand, so I should probably explain it. What is a propitiation? Well, a propitiation means a sacrifice that satisfies and turns away the wrath of God for sin. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies and turns away the wrath of God 
for sins. There are objections to this doctrine so much, as I said, that there are some translators who don't want to put it in there. They want to use the word expiation, which is not so much a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God for sin or satisfies any sort of wrath of God. Expiation would just simply be the removal of the guilt of sin. There's two reasons why they want to change it and put that word. One is because there are many who don't like the idea that God has wrath. Built into the word propitiation is the fact that God would be angry at sin. But it's a fact. It's a fact. If you don't believe me, then just flip back here to Romans 1.18 you might remember this verse because I quoted it an awful lot when we were going through Romans 1 and 2 and 3. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And do you know what he does from Romans 1.18 all the way to the end of chapter 1 and all the way to the end of chapter 2 and all the way to verse 20 of chapter 3? He explains exactly how it is that the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of men. Whether Jew or Gentile or any other category of mankind that you can think of, that men are in sin and that God has wrath against sin and that they, we need something other than ourselves to redeem us. We need Jesus. So if there are those who don't like the idea of God's wrath in general because it doesn't seem to mesh with the idea of God's love. It's just simply a misunderstanding of God. The fact that God has wrath does not mean that God does not have love. If God were to be love only, such that he loved sin, what kind of God would that be? Yes, John, 1 John says God is love. Praise God for that. His love is demonstrated according to that same book of the Bible that he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. His, his love is poured out in that he himself made the way for his wrath to be propitiated so that he could show us the fullness of that love forever and ever. God has wrath against sin and God is right to have wrath against sin because God is holy there's another reason why some won't, don't want to say the word propitiation here, and it's because they don't like the idea of God demanding a blood sacrifice to be appeased. Because, boy, that sounds gross and weird and harsh, almost like a pagan god or like a child abuser. There's all kinds of accusations that have been thrown around about God for this doctrine of propitiation by his blood. Guys, you need to realize that God is the one who not only demanded a blood sacrifice to be appeased, but provided the blood sacrifice of himself. It, it, says, it says it this way. Paul, Paul puts it this way in Acts 20, 28, as he's speaking to the elders of the Ephesians church. He, he tells them, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You hear that? God is not just going around like, oh, I was a peaceful God until you sinned, and now I'm worked up, and I'm going to get my blood. Oh, so there, 
there's so many problems with that idea of God that I just, I can't lay them all out right now. But here is the fact. Here is the fact. God is angry with sin and the sinners who commit those sins. Rightly, he is angry every day. That's what the Bible says. That's what it says in the Psalms. And he is also the God who shows infinite love and mercy. And he can bring those two things together, those two attributes of himself, he can bring them together in relationship to us sinners in one and only one way, and that is the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ, you see the fullness of God's wrath being poured out. And who is God's wrath poured out upon? God. God the Son propitiating the wrath of God the Father. And this is not God the Father saying, oh, I just want to get at him. I cannot believe that you would get in my way, God the Son. No. One will within God, and his will was to save us by his grace through the death of Jesus. He bought us by his own blood. The word propitiation here in the Bible is also related to the mercy seat in the Old Testament. In fact, there's one place in Hebrews where uh, this same word is rightly translated as mercy seat, referring to that place within the tabernacle in the Old Testament. For some, this has thrown them off, and they've said maybe it doesn't really mean propitiation. Maybe it's talking about a piece of furniture. But it makes perfect sense. That mercy seat, it's not a seat, it's not a chair, seat in terms of a place. Like you say, the seat of government, it's not a chair, it's just the place where the government is. The mercy seat, if you're, you're not familiar or you weren't around when we, when we went through Exodus a while back, it, it, it's on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies, in the very central place within the tabernacle. And this Ark of the Covenant, this box, within it, it has... Uh, a couple of items, but the main item that's, that was placed within the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses and wrote with his own finger to be placed in there. And above the top of the box, above the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there are these two angels, kind of like these right here. And they're reaching out their wings and their faces are down. Because there's not going to be a visible representation of God, but there's going to be the idea, hey, there's a reason why these angels' faces are down. It's because God is present here over this ark. And so what you have is a holy God up here, and then down inside the box you have his holy law by which he judges man. And do you know what's going to happen if there is nothing between the holy God and the holy law? That judgment is going to break forth in the fullness of his righteous wrath toward those men, toward those people. But do you know what's in between? It's called the mercy seat. That top part of the box. It's the place where every year, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies with the blood from the sacrifice that had been given for the people for their sins, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And it says, it says in the Bible that when he sprinkles the blood, 
that this atonement has been made for them and they shall be forgiven. You know what has come between God and his law in relation to sinful man is the blood of the sacrifice. And was it the blood of bulls and goats that would take away sin? Absolutely not. Hebrews 9 says this. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But then in Hebrews 10, it says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know what we need as the place of our atonement, as the object of our atonement, as the blood of our atonement? We need the Lamb of God. John the Baptist prophesied of Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes away the sins of the world. The blood of bulls and goats can never do it, but the Lamb of God can. He is a propitiation for our sins by his blood. So that when God rightly looks in judgment upon us for our breaking of his law as represented in the Ten Commandments, he can look at the blood of Christ that came between us and that law. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid it all. By his blood. When it says by his blood, it's not talking about a magical power that's in the physical liquid. It's not saying that you need to pretend that you're actually drinking the blood of Christ when you take communion or something like that. That's not what it means. This is talking about the fact that Jesus actually bled and died for us. That he substituted himself for us. And that in that, he did something much bigger and greater than could have ever been done in those Old Testament sacrifices. According to Hebrews 9, what he did is he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The high priest had to go in every year. He had to make a sacrifice for the people. He had to make a sacrifice for himself, and it never ended. But Jesus secured an eternal redemption by his blood. He propitiated the wrath of God. He took it. He paid it. He put it away so that when God looks upon us, he can no longer see us in our sin as believers in Christ, but sees us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. I have to say that's the case for those who trust in Christ. But for those who don't, you are still in your sin. You're still in your sin. Here's some good news, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And Ephesians 1, 7, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This idea of propitiation by his blood, it, it, it carries with it the idea of what we call penal substitutionary atonement. If you've been around for a while, those words are not mysterious to you. You know them. I hope you know them. If you don't know them, well, that's why I'm saying them again today. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means penalty. Jesus paid the penalty for sin. That's the propitiation. He took the price upon himself. Substitutionary means that he substituted himself for actual sinners. For actual sinners. As we prayed from Isaiah 53 earlier, here's the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. He was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He substituted himself for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. This is why this is not a potential sacrifice. This is not a potential atonement. This is an actual atonement. This is something that Jesus actually accomplished for actual, real people with real names whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, according to the book of Revelation. When atonement is made for us, you will be set free. Jesus bought it. He paid it for you. Atonement in the Bible is always this way. It is always for a specific people, and it is always effectual. It's never just sort of out there generally, and maybe someone will take it or maybe someone will not. It is done for actual people. Ten times in the book of Leviticus and twice in the book of Numbers, there is a statement along the lines of, and the priest will make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. There is no such thing as atonement for a person who will not be forgiven. But when Jesus has paid it, he has secured that eternal redemption. You see this in other places like Revelation 1.5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You hear that? By his blood, he has freed us from our sins. His blood was not just poured into this big vat over here to see if anybody would come and take to be freed from their sins. He actually accomplished it for specific people. As it says in Revelation 5, 9, you were slain. This is speaking, praise to Jesus. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. A vast multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. And with every, in every tribe and tongue and nation, specific people who Jesus actually knew and intended that he was being the propitiation by his blood for us. It's amazing. It's amazing. Just one more place where it says this. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Christ loved who? The church. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Guys, I'm telling you all that just so that you can have confidence that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for you. Jesus' blood sacrifice, the propitiation of sins by his blood, it's not something that's going to fail. It is effective. It's effective. Guys, we don't need any more sacrifice for sins. He is the propitiation by his blood. When you take the Lord's Supper, what we're not doing is we're not sacrificing Christ on an altar. By the way, we don't call this an altar. We call this a table. It's a supper table, not an altar, right? We are not sacrificing Christ again to cover our most recent sins. You know what we're doing? We have the Lord's Supper that, that Jesus gave us as a means of grace, a gracious reminder 
that his one-time sacrifice at Calvary 2,000 years ago is always effective for us. When, when we worship, when we come together and we do these things like we're doing right now, we're not doing this as a way to wash away more of our sins. You know, what we're doing is, is we are coming in, in joyful adoration of the Savior who has already done it, rejoicing that we've been set free. The sacrifice of Christ was enough and is enough right now. When we find in our own personal lives that we've sinned, we, we confess our sin and we repent of our sin, but we're not doing that as a way to carry out self-punishment for our sin that's going to show God, you really ought to forgive me because I'm this serious and I'm willing to suffer this much because of it. No, the punishment was in full on Jesus at the cross. And the reason that we come in repentance and confession is not for self-punishment. It's out of this brokenhearted joy that Jesus was already punished in our place to fully pay the full price for our sins. Jesus paid it all. And how is it received? Well, it's received, these last words here, by faith. To be received by faith. Now, there, you, you may have different translations because it's a, sort of a strange uh, grammatical way that Paul actually wrote this. Some translations say something like a propitiation to be received by faith in his blood or something like that. The words are in a strange order. Greek doesn't work the same way as English all the time, but I think that this translation is getting right what is the sense of this passage, that when it says by faith, it's talking about here is how you receive the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Here is how you receive it. He's already said back there, it's by grace as a gift. Not a cheap gift, a vastly, infinitely costly gift of the blood of Christ. But how do we receive it? Well, we receive it by faith. The way that it was worked is at the cross. The way that it's given is as a free gift by grace. And the instrument that God uses by the power of the Holy Spirit to apply this finished redemption of Jesus to human hearts and to save us, the instrument that he uses is what we call faith. And it's very simple. It's very simple. We believe and are saved. All of this is just received by believing upon him. The, the words, uh, the words to, to be received, you know, it's getting at that idea. Take the gift. As he's going to say in, in Romans 6, 23, I already quoted the first half of the verse, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amazing. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. How do children of wrath, which is what Ephesians 2 says that we all were by birth, how do children of wrath receive free gift? How do we have the wrath of God turned away from us? Is it through doing well enough to earn it? Of course not. You can't do that. Is it through becoming a better person who deserves it? It's by proving to God that we are the kind of person who ought to receive this free gift. No, absolutely none of that. It says it is through faith. Faith not in ourselves. Faith not in the circumstances of life and getting through the hard challenges. Faith in a person whose name is Jesus. 
putting our trust for all of our eternity in Him alone. It is through faith in Christ that we receive the propitiatory saving sacrifice of Christ. This is what Paul tells the church in Corinth in in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says, here's what's most important. Here is what it is that you must hold fast to to be saved. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That atonement for our sins, it was made a long time before we were born. And if Jesus died specifically for you, then you will come to faith, but it needs to be applied to you. You need to come to faith. You are commanded to come to faith in Jesus Christ. If Jesus has made the sacrifice for you, the Holy Spirit will apply it to you, and here's how he's going to do it. He's going to apply it to you by faith, by believing in the only Son of God. Let me put it really simply. John 1, verses 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Another way that's simple, Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And let me put it even simpler than that. If you are trying to wrap your mind around the concept of propitiation and redemption, and penal substitutionary atonement and all these kinds of things, let me put this very simply to you in the way that Paul put it to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. That Philippian jailer called out, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul say? What is the truth of God's word? Here's the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It is by faith that this comes to us and it's simple. It is so simple. It's so simple. When it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, I want to say that first to those who don't yet believe. If you don't yet believe, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you will know that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, that he was paying your price propitiating the wrath of God out of the love of God upon the Son of God for you by name. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And I want to say that also as an encouragement to you who already believe in the Lord Jesus, who are already trusting today in Jesus. This remains true every day. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's very simple. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, to be the propitiation for our sins by his blood. I thank you for the incredible, unspeakable blessing that it is. Not only that he's done that, but also for the Holy Spirit to come and to apply his redemption to us by faith. I pray that there might be people even sitting in this room right now who would receive that free gift of eternal life right now, to turn to Jesus and believe. He has been put forth. There's no other evidence needed. It's been done. I pray that you would grant them to receive it and to live, to be set free from sin and misery for all eternity, to know you. God, I pray that you would help us who believe to continue in that joy and that life 
that redemption that's been purchased for us at the cross. Thank you that Jesus has come into the world. Thank you that he's fully carried out his purpose, that he has secured an eternal redemption for us by his blood. And I thank you that he's coming again so that all of this will be set right visibly forever and ever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.